From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just finished up recording this week's show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories and even bigger conversations, including PayPal and Apple caller trees, and we'll accept each other's products. A lot of lively debate here about the intentions of, of Apple in this space and whether PayPal are making a good move by, by going into partnership with them. So lots to dig into here. Stripe and others are making tough layoffs. So we also look at this, um, really difficult time for lots of big tech companies making some some difficult decisions about their, their staffing levels. So we dig into that to understand kind of what's driven that, what that means for the wider industry and how that might impact the rest of the ecosystem. And finally, Glastonbury Festival ticket issues. So uh, one of the world's biggest festivals, really, really, really struggling to process payments recently um, and also a little bit of chat about 11FS's own spoof festival. So we get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. Welcome to episode 680 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my co-host, Benjamin Enser, Director of Research and Strategy at 11FS. How are you, Benjamin? I'm really well, thank you, Kate. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. You made it into the office. I'm very, very impressed, very jealous. We've got uh, tube strikes here in London today for anyone who's listening from abroad. So you've done well, Benjamin. I don't take the tube, that's how. <laughs> that's cheating, that's not allowed. Um, well, congratulations to you anyway. So, um, Joining us, we have a FinTech Insider debut for Alex Johnson, creator at FinTech Takes. Welcome, Alex. Great to have you here. Could you give us a little introduction to you and FinTech Takes, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, I've uh, been in FinTech for the last 15 years or so, kind of bouncing around between market research roles and then operator roles at different FinTech companies. And most recently, I've been working on a twice-weekly newsletter uh, on all things FinTech called FinTech Takes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Looking forward to getting your take, sorry for the pun, uh, on, on the news this week. So thanks for, thanks for joining us. And we have a welcome return for Sophie Winwood, principal at Anthemis. Welcome back to the show, Sophie. Could you give our audience a brief reintroduction to you and to Anthemis, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. I um, am an investor at Anthemis. We are a venture capital fund focusing on everything to do with the future of financial services, so fintech, insurtech, and all relevant adjacencies. Um, bread and butter is an early stage investing, although we do do later stage investing as well. Brilliant. Yeah, well, fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us. And with that, let's get into the news. So first up, we took this story from Bloomberg, but it's in lots of places. And that is that PayPal and Apple have reached a truce and will accept each other's products. PayPal announced it has reached a truce with Apple as the two technology giants will begin accepting each other's products in their separate payment ecosystems. Starting next year, PayPal and Venmo debit cards will be accepted inside the Apple wallet, meaning consumers will be able to use them anywhere Apple Pay is accepted. PayPal will also add Apple Pay as an option in the company's checkout offerings. PayPal and Apple offer the most widely used mobile wallets in the US and have seen usage of their products explode since the start of the pandemic. So... How significant is this truce between Apple and PayPal, Benjamin? What do you reckon? 
I think it's a bit too late for PayPal. I mean, PayPal has been steadily losing out over the past few years to other tech payment systems. And if you look at all the other payment systems, you look at Alipay, you look at WeChat Pay, Apple Pay, uh, Google Pay, they're all part of tech giants. So to me, this story is really about actually... You know, was Apple was Apple abusing its position as a dominant tech giant controlling its ecosystem? Is that actually a, a sort of abuse locking out PayPal? I think Apple sometimes gets close to or crosses the line between designing amazing experiences for its customers, which it does really well, and making it really hard for other companies to serve those customers or to serve them in a way that they you know profitable in a profitable way. So. To me, I think it's probably a bit too late for PayPal. So good news, but too late. Alex, what's what's your verdict? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that um, one of the pieces of news in there was the Venmo debit card will now be able to be added to Apple Pay. Great. Who has a Venmo debit card? I, I don't know of anyone. I haven't seen any numbers on it, but I don't think it's a huge number. I think, you know, to Benjamin's point... PayPal has squandered a bit of a lead that it had in P2P payments and then building on top of Venmo. And they're trying to catch up on that. And I think it's great that they've sort of opened the door with Apple. But I agree. I think it's a little too little too late for, for PayPal. And on Apple's side, I think it's just them continuing to sort of march forward in terms of making their financial services ecosystem more useful and just adding more utility to that for customers. Sophie, do you... Have you seen anything that kind of gives you a sense of why this has happened now? Like what's what's caused the thawing of the relationship? Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing is around Apple's tap to pay, which is the ability for merchants to be able to take payments on the Apple hardware. So sort of uh, displacing some of the, the dongles that we've we've seen. And so actually, in a way, it's kind of a win-win scenario for both of them because it will increase the ability uh, for Apple, you know, the, the desirability of the device to be sold if merchants can then use that to take payments, which is actually, when you think about it, huge um, and will continue to enable smaller merchants to be able to set up and kind of take payments quickly. And then it will increase the amount of, of, of transactions that PayPal will have through that, given that a lot of their sort of um, strength is around their merchants' positions. So I think that's probably one of the catalysts for this relationship. Interesting. Alex, do you share the excitement about tap to pay? Obviously, we've heard a lot about it. It's, you know, we're not, how confident are we about how successful it's been so far? Yeah, I am excited about it. I think um, one thing that I've observed, I, I'm based in Montana in the US, so not exactly a metropolitan area. And I think sometimes we sort of assume that the rate of adoption in the US of tap to pay is a little further ahead than it is. A lot of terminals uh, now can accept tap to pay, but outside of a few metropolitan areas like New York, San Francisco, the rates of usage of tap to pay are still relatively low. And the to the degree that it's happening, it's happening more with cards being tapped than with phones. And so I do think long term, it's going to be a big opportunity. And the ability for iPhones to directly take payments, uh, as Sophie is saying, I think is going to be a huge unlock in the Apple ecosystem. But I think we probably still have five to 10 years before we see it ramp up to the degree that it will. Absolutely. Benjamin, do you think tap to pay has potential outside the US? Yeah, sure it does. And I think, you know, it would probably take off faster um, in many other markets because 
Americans have been pretty slow to embrace contactless, you know, for a whole variety of reasons of the way, you know, Americans have habitually paid. I think what, what concerns me here, and again, I kind of sounding like the regulatory guy, is, again, is Apple taking advantage of its position to push out other businesses, right? You know, there are companies like Netscape and Microsoft and so on, they got in a lot of trouble with regulators in the past for taking advantage of their control of certain operating systems. Is Apple doing the same thing to squeeze out a whole bunch of smaller competitors? So I'm kind of not excited about this because what problem is Apple solving here? I can see the the revenue opportunity for Apple, but is this just at the cost of squeezing out other businesses? Who's winning here apart from Apple? What's I don't see the I don't see the merchant victory or the consumer victory here. I see the Apple victory. Maybe I'm missing something. Alex, do you reckon they're taking advantage? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you go back to the very earliest history of Apple Pay, you see this behavior, right? And so it's really nothing new from Apple. I mean, they, as Benjamin is saying, sort of dress themselves up in the, we always create great experience for customers. But when it comes to designing financial services ecosystems, the earliest days of Apple Pay were defined by them getting a sweetheart deal from Visa and MasterCard in exchange for agreeing not to develop their own closed network payment operation. And so they've always sort of wielded the leverage they had from a financial services perspective to exclude or include people in order to get the best possible economic results for the company. And I I see everything they're doing in financial services is just doubling down on that strategy, which I agree is not particularly customer friendly. It's not particularly friendly to developers or merchants, but Apple's trying to make more money in services and this is what they do. I guess, I mean, just to try and play devil's advocate a little bit, I I was reading of Sino's, I think, Square have have announced that they will kind of link up with Tap to Pay so that they can kind of link that into their point of sale app. And when they were talking about why they were doing that, they were talking about the use cases of merchants who just want to have as many ways to accept payments as possible. You know, as you're starting a business, scaling a business, if you've already got an iPhone, that's one less thing you've got to you've got to get up and running. If you it just reduces one barrier. So I suppose yes, I can totally see the the concerns but I suppose there is I can also see our customer benefit that, that will drive this as well Benjamin but, but I mean to come back to the point Alex was making about you know we've seen this movie before from Apple you know when Apple introduced Apple Pay at the time it was making it hard for banks to use some of the hardware features on the phone that Apple Pay was using right um, so it's, it's that kind of behavior you know, th- th- there's a reason that antitrust laws exist I've got nothing against Apple Apple is a fantastic company it's done amazing things that have made millions of people's lives better right it's a fantastic company however there's a reason antitrust laws exist is to prevent companies from abusing their position of power and so my question to regulators is is apple going too far here because at some point you know this is a market there's plenty of competition already does apple have an unfair advantage in that market and is it taking advantage of its control of the operating system i suspect it probably is Sophie, what role does Apple's dominance in the market kind of play on the decisions or the way that you guys are looking at the landscape from an investor point of view? Does that sort of influence how you're assessing business cases or how you're profiling investments? Yeah, I mean, it's it's always going to be a consideration when you look at companies that are either trying to build on or um, compete with these kind of large incumbents. And especially kind of when you need to build with, you need to take into consideration that it's not going to be the easiest rise. But coming back to the point that you were making, Kate, about enabling merchants to start very quickly and easily it on the flip side that is an interesting trend that we are watching uh, from a startup point of view which is actually if you if you think about five years ago the ability to start a company was a lot more complex 
um, especially with with the kind of fintech component. Now we can kind of build a lot of that stuff out of the box, given how many people are focusing on the different types of bank accounts, payment orchestrations. And so for us, it's it's kind of interesting because it's really like we have to delve a lot deeper into the where the differentiation lies because it's not building these like difficult technical fintech regulated propositions now because you can outsource that. Um, and so kind of that's how we look at the, this sort of lens. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really, really, really interesting. Um, PayPal is also working on a few other Apple related programs. I think it's saying that they'll um, add Apple Pay as a payment option for kind of fintechs, for the fintech sort of unbranded checkout flows on merchant platforms. You know, Alex, do you think we'll see more collaboration between the two of them going forwards? I do. Yeah. I mean, I think that the the number of different properties that each company controls is huge, right? I mean, PayPal's obviously been a giant in fintech for a long time. Apple has a huge ecosystem. And so there's a lot of different points of potential connection. And the one you just mentioned, I think, is a good example of one where we could see a really good overlap of value for both ecosystems. I mean, Apple Pay, not even just on a phone, but just like checking out on your computer or whatever, is a very streamlined way to conduct an e-commerce transaction for any Apple customer. Having that built in for PayPal merchants, to me, is a huge win-win. So I think that one is very notable. The Venmo debit card being added to Apple Pay, probably a little less so. So I think the, the value is a little unequal depending on the use case. Benjamin, what would your advice to PayPal be? Would you tell them to to run whilst they can? Or I think this is yeah, I think this is very challenging for PayPal and and you know all the other businesses that are trying to compete with Apple Pay or indeed you know AliPay or WeChat Pay or any of these dominant systems that are deeply embedded into ecosystems. It's very very tough competing against an ecosystem because you know Apple, of course, is a massive merchant as well, right? You know, there's obviously PayPal wants to have that some of that volume going over the, the networks. So I think it's very sensible for PayPal to collaborate because the more uh, the more ways there are to pay with PayPal, the better, the better for the merchants, the better for the consumers. So this is a very sensible thing for for PayPal. It may have been that PayPal's wanted this for a while and couldn't get Apple to do it. So I think it's very smart. I think PayPal needs to keep looking for where else can they collaborate? How else can they grow their network? Because PayPal's not growing um, or, or isn't growing anything like as fast as some of these other systems. So for PayPal, it's all about interoperability and making it easier to use PayPal and maybe actually competing with uh, Visa and MasterCard of can PayPal win share from the card networks that starts to get interesting if it can undercut card networks. Absolutely lots to watch out for in this space. And I'm already looking forward to the next Apple story so I can hear Benjamin getting getting wound up again. So we'll have to... I, I like <laughs> Apple. I like, I like Apple. I'm nervous of companies that look as if they're abusing their market position. Absolutely fair. Well, well, sadly, we're going to have to move on. So our next story comes from TechCrunch, and that is that Stripe is cutting 14% of its workforce. The CEO says that they overhired for the world we're in. So Stripe has announced that it's laying off 14% of its workers. That's one for impacting around 1,120 of the fintech giant's 8,000 strong workforce. The latest round of layoffs follows a string of cutbacks in the fintech space. Brex last month revealed it was cutting 11% of its workforce. Chime confirmed that 12% of its employees would be laid off, while Plio is set to axe 15% of its staff. In a memo published online, Stripe CEO Patrick Collison gave his reasons for the latest cutbacks, saying, We overhired for the world we're in, and it pains us to be unable to deliver the experience that we hoped that those impacted would have at Stripe. Well, yeah, um, obviously difficult difficult times and, and sort of sad sad stories. I mean, how 
How similar is Stripe's list of reasons for their job cuts to what we're hearing across the industry generally right now, Sophie? I was actually looking at the meta announcement and weirdly similar, like very word for word. And I, 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 in a way, I think it's, it's relatively positive that CEOs are owning up to their mistakes um, and, you know, are actually saying this is this is on me. I made a mistake. And unfortunately, the consequences be it is thousands of people are losing their jobs. But, you know, the, the first set of layoffs that we saw, I think, back in 2020, you had a bit more of a like, you know, it was there wasn't the, the best sort of experience with a lot of these layoffs. And I think CEOs have learned from that. And actually, the way you treat people on the way out is is going to it's going to have a big impact on on your business going forward. But yeah, I think it's the same old story we've been seeing with not just fintech, but tech generally, which has grew too fast in the good times. And and now it's not it's not going to work in this in this environment. Alex, what was what was your reaction? Yeah, I mean, I I think that my biggest reaction when I saw the Stripe news was Stripe has eight thousand employees. Like that was the first thing that jumped into my head <laughs> when I read that. And you know, I, I think Stripe is a great company, but for what they do and the way that they do it, it's kind of difficult to imagine that they need 8,000 employees. And what's interesting is when you read the whole statement that the CEO made, one of the parts that they talked about was allowing their success in some new product areas to drive them to let more coordination costs and operational efficiencies seep in. And I thought that language was really interesting because to me, what that says is they hired a lot of people who were dreaming up new ideas for Stripe could go this way, Stripe could go that way, we could add this other product, and getting away from kind of the core business that they're in. And I think it goes to what Sophie was saying, which is in the good times, you sort of look at the blackjack table and you're like, wow, we could play that hand and that hand and that hand and that hand all simultaneously and like really massively improve our odds of winning a lot of money. But when the tides shift, you really have to kind of pull back and say, nope, this is the core game that we're playing. This is where we're good at that. And 8,000 employees is too much for that core game that Stripe is trying to play. Benjamin, how do you, how do you stop operating costs from spiraling if you're, if you're trying to grow? I'm really interested by Alex's analysis because in many ways, you're right. You're absolutely spot on, Alex. You know, it's, it's super easy and in good times for companies to hire too many people, chase too many things. And yet on the other hand, you know, you think about, let's say, PayPal 10 years ago, well, did they do enough, right? Did they, you know, were they fast enough? And, you know, for Stripe, you know, the, for these sort of smaller fintechs, they're trying to keep running ahead of bigger fintechs and tech giants and trying to grow in that grow in that space by continuing to look for adjacent innovations. What, ex, what next thing can we do? So was the strategy wrong or did they just, just did they just get the market timing wrong? Um, Kate, I, th- I mean, I think we've had some really unexpected events this year. Almost nobody predicted the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That has driven up uh, food prices, driven up cost of living. It suddenly changed the economic outlook. You know, there were individual countries that were having some challenges, but suddenly the economic outlook completely changed as a result of the decisions of, you know, one one dictator. It's really hard for companies to anticipate that. You know, had this year turned out differently, would Stripe even be making these cuts? You know, maybe you know, maybe in a slightly better economic environment, they'd be they'd be thinking, oh, we're, our operating costs are a bit high. Let's just stop hiring, as opposed to let's start cutting people. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's the one phrase I think I agree with you, Alex. So there were tons of parts of that whole letter that were really interestingly worded. Like the one part which I suppose my eyes got stuck on was I think when they were talking about like we're proud that we're a capital efficient business. 
And I want that felt like such a short sentence, but I felt like it probably hides a whole lot of additional context, probably around the types of trade-offs they're having to make about, you know, not just like their costs, but also obviously their investor relationships and and what's going behind the scenes there. So I mean, I don't know, Sophie, did did you read anything into that? pride and capital efficiency that you can you can share from your experience or your perspective capital efficiency is like the the buzz phrase of the, the the day at the moment i think it's that's definitely been driven by investors i think you know when before it was growth 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 now it's capital efficiency gross margin you know looking at burn ratios and you know unfortunately the public market multiple hits is, is, is now transitioned into these late stage fintechs and the the ability to look good as a company now is not just about growth it is about unit economics it is about capital efficiency and so I think that it just makes complete sense that 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 phrase is in there interesting um I suppose Benjamin like if we try and flip this another way you know what what do you think the possibilities might be for these people that have lost their jobs in the current downturn what what possibilities could that create actually that was some of what I was thinking you know as Alex was surprised that that they, Stripe had 8000 employees I'm thinking wow that's that's a bunch of Stripe employees who are now on the market I mean Stripe's an amazing company Stripe's a great company to have on your CV um there'll be some you know, there'll be some impressive people who've been let go. Um, I think there'll be other companies. I know, obviously, given the environment, there's not so many companies hiring as there were a year ago. But there'll be some really great people that, um, who've been let go. And I think a lot of them will probably bounce back quite quickly into other roles um, or maybe even start up their own, you know, start their own ventures or whatever. So I think I think there'll be a lot of headhunters, you know, picking up phones. There's a lot of banks that could do with some Stripe talent, right? Absolutely. Um Sophie, how are how are VCs looking at this downturn? What's what's it looking like from your perspective? Yeah, so I think it's it's slightly different um, if you look at the late stage versus the early stage. So obviously Stripe is is kind of close to a potential liquidity event. They've been talking about an IPO for a while, and so um, that kind of massive decrease in valuations will really impact the way that investors look at a potential listing or a potential liquidity uh, event, given that companies have raised at such high valuations. At the early stage, which is where I'm focused at the moment, it's it's a really weird place to be at the moment. It's very, um, it's very kind of, uh, it's split. I'm going to go split. It's split between uh, companies still raising very, very quickly at high valuations when you've got um, teams that have built something before or teams that are really experts in a specific phase, whereas everyone else is really, really struggling to raise. I think you know, a lot of people are, are looking at this time as, as relatively negative and, and are quite scared and are worried about what's going to happen. Whereas I think that actually, you know, FinTech was born out of the 2008 crisis. And I think the companies that are going to be built at the moment, especially given the, the influx of talent, are going to be real businesses that are solving real problems that have had to have that financial discipline from the get-go. And so actually, if you are able to deploy capital at the moment, which we are, it's a super exciting time to be deploying. It's just, um, yeah, a lot more risky. We're happy to do a lot more diligence and really making sure that we understand kind of fully the risks and knowing that capital is no longer freely available. Okay. No, I like I like the optimistic note. That's that's good to throw into the mix. Alex, obviously Benjamin talked about potentially banks snapping up talent, but I suppose 
given the current downturn, do you think banks might be looking to snap up some fintechs or might we have M&As on the cards? Or? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I, I wrote about in my newsletter banks uh, deploying a lot of their sort of capital for acquisitions in 2020 and 2021. And um, I'm guessing those banks are probably kicking themselves now because their ability to go shopping today is so much better than it was during the height of the boom. And so I think that for the banks that sort of left a little bit of dry powder or were a little bit more cautious during those years, yeah, the opportunities to either hire or to acquire fintech companies or to sort of forge very beneficial partnerships with fintech companies, like they have all the leverage right now in terms of doing that. And I think the most successful banks over the next 10 years will be the ones that act really aggressively on the tech and fintech front right now. Absolutely. Well, if you wanted to hear more about how innovation survives a recession, you can check out episode 677 of Fintech Insider Insights, where our very own Nicole Perry spoke to great guests from Oak North and VersaPay. With that, we're just going to take a quick pause. We'll be back very shortly. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. This one comes from TechCrunch, and that's that Quona Capital is sinking $332 million into startups focused on financial inclusion. Emerging markets venture capital firm Quona Capital has announced the final close of its Fund 3 at $332 million, exceeding its $250 million target. Quona focuses its investments on financial services for underserved consumers and businesses in Latin America. India, Southeast Asia, Africa, and MENA. Quona Capital Funds have made more than 65 investments to date and will make 25 to 30 new and follow-on investments from the third fund. Notable exits from its first fund were India Mart, which went public in 2019, and Coins.ph, which was acquired by Indonesian super app player Gojek. To find out more about how Quona Capital tries to measure financial inclusion, we reached out to Kristen Sadler, Head of Impact at Quona Capital. The core themes we're looking at when measuring financial inclusion impact of a company are across three pillars within Quona's framework. Number one is access, where we assess the scale of access created to financial services for previously underserved segments. KPIs for this pillar include the number of customers or MSMEs served, and for that we're usually looking at active customers for a given period, and the percentage of these customers or MSMEs that are underserved or likely would not have had access to financial services based on their income or the size of their business. The second pillar is quality, where we look beyond access being created to understand if and to what extent a company's products are conducive to the needs of underserved populations in these markets. So here we're assessing things like affordability, product depth and breadth, convenience, and customer satisfaction. The third pillar of our framework, which is arguably the most important, we call markets. This is a critical pillar of our framework because no single fintech is going to change the trajectory of financial inclusion. 
but they may be able to influence the market to become more inclusive. This is also the toughest pillar to measure, but at Quona, we look at the scale and diversity of the teams. We assess the number of innovative or new to market products that a company has successfully launched, as well as the number of copycats or imitators in the region. And we also look at the amount of capital raised by a given company as we're investing in emerging markets where capital is more scarce than in developed markets. Benjamin, I mean, you hate Apple, but I know you love a framework. So what, what's your verdict on, on Quona's framework? I was actually, I was, I was listening to her, to her talking and trying to think, trying, trying to think it through. It was, it was, it was very interesting. I haven't really thought hard about how, how I would go about or how other companies go about sort of assessing financial inclusion, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, how much are you focused on profit and how much are you um, focused on on creating good and there's a little bit there's a little bit of a balance there right because as an investor you need a return but if you're also trying to drive inclusion in those markets there's a not a charitable element but there's an element of trying to think through where can we deploy this money in a way that's going to make the biggest difference so I thought it was really interesting how she went through it but honestly I can't give you a quick reaction to that framework without thinking through it a bit more um, so, sorry, that's a terrible answer. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It was probably a, probably a harsh question. Um, Sophie, obviously it sounds pretty exciting for them. They've exceeded their target. Um, it's a big fund. You know, does the size of it show there's still a strong appetite for fintech globally? Yeah, massively. I think um, one thing I want to shout out is a female GP. Woohoo. Like, that is not <laughs> that common. So, firstly, that's great. Um, and secondly, I think it is really important that this is focused on in its isolation and rather than kind of wrapped up into uh, a thesis. Of, of course, Anthemus, we focus on financial inclusion, but actually having a framework around it specifically within emerging um, areas is, is really great. And I think that, you know, more and more VC investors are looking for not just, it's no zero sum game, right? We're not just looking to make returns. We absolutely are. That's kind of our driving metric. And I think that should be important, but also the impact that you are kind of making on the world and that either that or through kind of climate investments or, or diversity investments. I think it's it's all very, very positive. What what would you say? What What is the Anthemis approach and how do you guys balance that? What, what's the balance that you guys are looking at in particular? Yeah, so we very much have a, yeah, a no zero game uh, philosophy, which is... Um, we we look we assess all aspects of it um and we have to have a when we're putting something to the ic that has to have a kind of um, impact lens so how is this it, how is this business going to make a difference and is it positive or negative and you know we would really you know only invest in companies that make a, a positive impact in, in the world we're also very very pro diversity it's part of our diligence process and if even if a company doesn't have the diversity we want to see, we will actively work with them to implement that diversity. Um, so yeah, kind of um, across all of our investments, it's a very big part of our thesis. Awesome. No, thanks. Thanks for the insights. Um, Alex, I suppose from your perspective, you know, how do you see this investment in emerging part? Uh, how do you see this investment in emerging markets trend playing out? You know, do you think it's, it's uh, a, a good bet or a good way for uh, investment to be going? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Candidly, North America and Europe are probably over-invested in, and the rest of the world is under-invested in, just looking at the scale of the opportunity. So I think it makes all the sense in the world. I think my biggest takeaway, again, from sort of the mania of the last two years is that international fintech investing, particularly in emerging markets, is not for tourists, 
right? And we saw a lot of that over the last couple of years just because people had tons of capital to deploy. And so they were looking for X, but in India or X or in, you know, Brazil. And that's not a good model um, because you really do have to have a sort of on the ground understanding of the market, the dynamics, the problems, the sort of regulatory infrastructure. And it, I think it's clear in these guys' case that this is their third fund that they've raised. It's the largest one that they've raised. They've been doing this for a while. So very confident in this particular case. And I think it makes a lot of sense. But I do think there's a big distinction to be drawn between people who do this as something of a hobby versus people who do this every day as the core part of what they're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was interesting. Gwena talked about, you know, I think they describe themselves as global local. So obviously, yes, you know, buzz phrase, watch out. But it was interesting. They talked about having people, not just who lived in a market, but you know, were born there. And I thought, interestingly, have had children there. I wasn't sure why that was, I thought, again, an interesting, interesting criteria. You know, Sophie, how important is it from your perspective to have someone in and around the market you're looking to invest in and, and sort of how much lived experience do they have to have actually had to be be credible? I think it is super important because um, one, how are you going to hear about deals if you're not on the ground? Um, you need to be there kind of, you need to build your networks, you need to keep your networks fresh. And then secondly, you need to, again, understand the kind of pain points um, and the uh, the way that companies will be able to, to build and grow. I also think um, to Alex's point around, you know, people kind of what thought they were, wanted to invest in, in these emerging places and then were like, oh no, it's too difficult. The, the other flip side to that is um, as a startup, you really want an investor who can support you. So if you have boots on the ground, if you have a network there, um, then then you're going to be a better investor for that company. And so I think the the offering is 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 is, is a great offering. Absolutely. Benjamin, is um is financial inclusion a steady bet? Would you would you be putting your money into financial inclusion right now? I'll come on to that in a second. One of the things that really strikes me about this is, you know, this is 300, um, 300 odd million, which is a lot of money. But in the context of the amount of venture capital going into fintech, it's peanuts. And we're talking here about more than half of the population of the world. I mean, okay, this fund doesn't include China, but all of Latin America, most of the rest of Asia, India, Southeast Asia, etc. This amount of money here is is a trifle given the vast number of people that we're talking about um so yeah i think financial inclusion is a is 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 definitely a steady bet to me the whole you know huge thing of fintech is suddenly you've got this ability to bring millions of people who were previously financially excluded into the financial ecosystem. You couldn't do that with bank branches and dial-up modems and so on because it was too expensive, too slow, too costly. Mobile phones, uh, satellite connectivity, etc., the internet, suddenly you can connect almost anyone and you can do things like you can sell life insurance in penny packets to, you know, people who have very low standard of living. So suddenly you can bring financially financial assets and information to billions of people who you previously couldn't reach. There's got to be a return on that, um, as well as the social good. So, yes, I, I'm a huge believer um, in this. So I, I wish them very well with this fund. Um, I wish them every success. I think finding, you know, to Sophie's point, finding good founders, finding, you know, finding business models that actually work and so on is, is really tough. Um, but I, I, I think there's a huge opportunity, massive opportunity here. I um, I just wanted to give a shout out to one of our portfolio companies. Um, it's a company called Ajara. Um, they are building a, um, they call it a financial super app, but so starting with crypto exchange, but then building into products like loans and savings in Francophone Africa. And the um, interest, what we really liked about them is at first they said their CAC, which was like 
50 cents and we were like what do you mean your CAC's 50 cents that doesn't make any sense that's you know how, it's a BC company but they have on the ground people who are local um, influencers and they will go around door to door and talk to these people because that's the way that you do it in these these countries and they had created these incredible communities and events and and sort of um kind of brand around this app that meant that their um, cost of acquisition was incredibly low, but it was almost this like virality, but not digital. And I thought that was really fascinating. The the founder is this amazing woman called Nelly, um, who's just kind of now built this big um, company. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see it kind of brought to life through a company we've invested in. Absolutely. Well, kudos, kudos to them. I'm always People always get very excited when you float low customer acquisition costs yeah. around. So um, and always exciting to have the word CAC on the podcast. So um, a double double win. Well, brilliant. Well, we're going to have to <laughs> we're going to have to move us on to our next story now, and that comes from Reuters, and that is that Santander is going to block UK transfers to crypto exchanges in 2023. Santander will block UK customers from sending real time payments to cryptocurrency exchanges next year as part of measures to protect customers from scams. At an unspecified point during 2023, the bank will introduce a block on all real-time payments to cryptocurrency exchanges made via telephone banking and in-branch payments, as well as online and mobile banking. From November the 15th this year, the bank will join other UK retail banks in limiting customer transfers to cryptocurrency exchanges. Santander customers will face limits of £1,000, that's $1,123 at the time of recording, uh, per transaction and £3,000 in total in any rolling 30-day period for transfers to crypto exchanges via mobile and online banking. Customers will still be able to receive payouts from crypto exchanges into their accounts. Benjamin, is Santander right to take this step, do you think? No, I don't think they are. It's, It's people's money. I applaud the determination to protect their customers from scams and frauds. But there are customers who are legitimately, knowingly, deliberately investing in crypto. um, And to cut them off and to prevent them, it's probably just going to cause some of those people to switch banks. But um, I I think that's going too far. So I I would also think, you know, another way of Santander dealing with this would be to actually negotiate with some of the cryptocurrency exchanges, you know, form partnerships with Binance or whoever, and start saying, okay, you know, we are concerned about customers putting money into scams and actually talk to the cryptocurrency exchanges, exchange, you know, work with them. So block certain exchanges, perhaps, block certain known scams or whatever, but blocking customers from spending their money and sending their money, I, I think there might have been better ways of doing this, much as I applaud the sentiment of what they're trying to do of protecting customers. I like how they very generously say that they'll still receive payouts. Like if you want to give us money, we'll happily take it. But you know, we're just going to protect you from yourself. Like you can't, you can't send money out of your account. But you know, pile it, pile it on in. Maybe I'm being too skeptical, Alex. I don't know. What's your verdict? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this is a good week to have this conversation because FTX just melted to the ground this week, uh, and FTX was the second largest crypto exchange in the world. And um, I think it it points to an interesting problem, which is. I think the historical reason for banks restricting this type of activity was, well, we don't want to be the on-ramp to you to get to an exchange to then go buy exotic tokens or coins that maybe are scams or are going to have rug pulls or what have you. That assumed that it's not so much the exchange that's the problem, it's what you might do once you're in the exchange that's going to be a problem, and we don't want that to happen to you. Now, and I think you know, FTX is a pretty important example of this, 
you have to worry about, well, maybe if you just put it in the exchange and then go buy Bitcoin, the exchange might melt down and you might not be able to get your money back out of the exchange. And so I think going back to Benjamin's point, I agree. I mean, I think that if you're going to restrict consumers' ability to send money to some of these exchanges, you have to then put forward, you know, you can't use this exchange, but we do have a partnership with this other one, right? And, you know, to draw a contrast in the U.S., the difference between FTX and someone like Coinbase in terms of how they operate is pretty different. And so from a consumer's perspective, they might look similar. But if a bank was evaluating those two different exchanges, I think they would come to two very different conclusions in terms of which one was potentially safer for consumers. So creating safe ways to do this, I think, is really important. But I do generally agree with the bank's perspective that you know we have to stop consumers from just rushing into this because there's a whole lot of danger. Interesting. Sophie, do you think banks should be making investment decisions on customers' behalves? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a little bit like your parents like stopping you from going to a gig when you're 15. You're like, I'm just, I'm just like, okay, yeah, there might be a risk that something's going to happen at this gig, but I'm probably going to be fine. Like, I'm going with my friends. I've done my research. It's going to be really fun. You know, it's just like, fine. I'll just, you know, go anyway. Um, so... I think it's, you know, it, it feels like a bit of a, 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 a too much of a, a blanket move. But if they've done the assessment and they really believe that they will benefit more from people not losing money through forward with people uh, leaving Santander in response to this, then maybe, maybe it's the right thing for the bank to do. I don't know. I just, I think there could have been, there are ways they could have done it, um, or the ways they could do it, and maybe will do it in future, where you could protect vulnerable customers, right? You know, there are certain customers mm-hmm. who the bank knows are vulnerable for one reason or another. Um, so you could protect them. You could do what uh, banks like Monzo have done of, you know, putting in a gambling block where they could get people to say, actually, I don't think I do want to put money into crypto. Um, they could delay the payments to crypto, right? They could say, you know, are you sure you want to do this? Um, and, and so on. You know, that th- they could make it harder. They could introduce friction um, without actually blocking people. And to your point, Alex, I think, yeah, as well, they could they could nominate other um, other crypto things. Because, you know, people, some people want to invest in crypto. And if people know what they're doing and are knowledgeably investing in crypto, well, it's their money. Yeah, it feels, it's an interesting point, definitely around, you know, should we be putting more like friction back into payments? Because it feels like we've gone on this journey of just trying to convince everyone, like everything has to be real time, real time, real time, real time. And now it seems like we're like, oh no, not everything real time, like wind it back in. Um, So I think it's definitely an interesting, an interesting question. Alex, do you think we're going to see pushback on real time payments? I mean, obviously, U.S. obviously is a different payments network generally, but I mean, what's what's your take? Yeah, I mean, we're wrestling with that in the U.S. right now, right? Because we're just getting to the precipice of maybe moving over to real-time payments. And we already have some, you know, networks in place like, you know, Zelle is an example that allows for real-time payments. And guess what? Fraud has spiked on Zelle as Zelle adoption has taken off. And it's largely aided by the fact that, yeah, the money is moving in real time. So I agree. I mean, I think that to Benjamin's point, 
there's nothing wrong with introducing more friction when it's based on an assessment of potential risk to the consumer, right? And I think that from the bank's perspective, it's really smart because the bank can look back on it and go, you know, look, as a consumer, hey, you moved money to this place. You remember all of those times when we asked, are you sure we're delaying this for two days because we want to give you this opportunity to maybe back away from this? And then if something bad happens, it was still the customer making the choice. They're going to own that choice, but they're also going to remember the bank that sort of took the time time to educate them on the risks and sort of slow them down. And it kind of goes back to Sophie's point, like, you appreciate, I think, in retrospect, when your parents are like, I'm not sure that's the greatest idea. And maybe you don't want to do that. Or maybe make sure you're home by 11 o'clock. Like, you don't appreciate it in the moment. But in retrospect, you appreciate them looking out for you and taking those extra steps. And I think banks have to sort of play the long game in terms of introducing that friction, even if it does annoy some customers in the short term. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I suppose, I mean, you'll definitely be much closer to it than me. But it sort of feels like we're almost getting a slight reverse reaction to crypto with the banks in the US. Like it feels like maybe stances are softening or as a sort of thawing of skepticism there. Um, MasterCard have, have launched a new program, for example. What do you reckon, Alex? Like a US bank's going to be kind of the cool guys and it's going to be the UK ones being the fuddy-duddy parents? Well, I think they were. And then I think FTX happened and a couple other things happened that maybe have caused banks to kind of go, whoa, okay, this is kind of what we thought. Because there was a lot of initial skepticism from US banks uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, when they really started getting pressure from their customers to add crypto capabilities and more support for crypto. And I think at the time they were like, okay, maybe it's our right? And then I think this is the thing that in the back of their heads, they were going, we were always kind of worried about this. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if US banks sort of step back into line with UK banks and go, yeah, we're actually not wild about this. And then I think the other thing that's likely to happen is that regulators are just going to put more pressure on this and are going to be paying a lot of attention to what are the on-ramps to all of these exchanges and what are the processes you have in place to be an on-ramp into crypto and how are you protecting customers? So I think the regulatory pressure is going to be greater than it has been over the last couple of years. Absolutely. Benjamin, I suppose just to come back, I mean, obviously we, we kind of criticize the banks, but ultimately this the problem comes from the fraudsters, right? It comes from the people that are using these systems erroneously in the first place. So what do you think we should be doing to tackle that more directly? What do you think would be a better way to tackle those? Yeah, I'm being I'm being too harsh on, on Santander. I, I, again, I do applaud that they're trying to take action here. Um, the, the fraud is incredibly difficult, right, to, to, to crack down on. Um, I think one of the challenges for, for the British market and in many other markets is the regulators actually don't have enough staff. Um, there aren't enough people. I think we need to see probably more voluntary funding of regulators by the banks. This is something all the banks have share an interest. I mean, frankly, every financial institution in the UK or indeed every country has a shared interest in trying to wipe out fraud. I think we may need to see sort of more industry-wide initiatives to um, support the police to make sure that criminals are getting prosecuted. Obviously, a lot of this is cross-border, like the majority of it is probably cross-border. Um, so I think you need action at a sort of industry-wide level and, and a government level. It's good that Santander is thinking hard about this, but I, there's, there's a lot more that needs to be done. And the, you know, the regulators and the police need more resources because you know you can make a lot of money uh, ripping people off on crypto. Um, not that I have any personal experience of that, but you know, clearly there are people making a lot of money um, from ripping other people off, which is why this is growing. Maybe we can persuade all those Stripe employees who've, who've lost their roles at Stripe to fight fight crypto crime instead that would be that'd be a nice way to to 
COVID out. So, um, well, sadly, yeah, we could we could chat about this for a long time, but I'm going to have to move us on to the section of the show that we're calling Big Click Energy. And that's a quick fire roundup of some of the more click worthy news this week. So I'll kick things off. And our first story comes from Fintech Finance. And that is that black owned fintech company launches a free grant search platform. So US black owned fintech and finance company Nove LLC has announced the launch of a new online tool designed to help small businesses find grants and tax incentives that can help them to grow. Called Nove Grants, the new tool will allow users to search a database of thousands of financial assistance opportunities from both the government and the private sector. Nove founder Rico McCambry, what a great name, says that the grants his team is gathering for inclusion in the database range from $500 to $5 million in size and are designed to help business owners serve their communities. In addition to grants, Nove also helps companies build business credit, provides access to traditional business funding and offers businesses the ability to provide consumer financing for their high ticket offerings. I think this actually sounds really cool. I feel like I'm seeing quite a few examples at the moment of these sort of like, let me help you find information that's hard to find, uh, either sort of whole platforms or it being launched as features within within existing platforms. You know, it's so it's generally so complicated to navigate benefits and grants and community funding. And the one thing we always hear every single time we speak to small businesses is that they don't have time. So um, I suspect there are a lot of businesses that actually default to applying for credit because it just feels easier than having to navigate sort of this bureaucratic uh, warren. So I love the fact that these folks are trying to tackle that and building a model that blends grants with lending and trying to kind of just take that holistic approach. I suppose the one thing I'd be worried about is actually like quite a few of these grants probably come with commitments and reporting requirements and things like that. So it's one thing to find a nice pot of money but do you actually understand kind of what you have to commit to 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 access that and maintain that so i'm definitely have a rummage if i can to sort of find out how they're how they're managing that and how they're how they're overcoming that Benjamin, do you want to cover the next one for us? Yep. So the next story is that Twitter has filed paperwork to enter the payments business, which was reported in the New York Times and elsewhere. So Elon Musk's Twitter may be getting into the payments business. The social media company last week filed registration paperwork to pave the way for it to process payments, according to a filing with the Treasury Department's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, which was obtained by the New York Times. The move comes as Mr. Musk seeks to transform Twitter after purchasing the company last month for $44 billion. Turning Twitter into a payments processor would be a return of sorts for Musk to his early days in the tech industry, because back in 1999, he helped found X.com, an online bank that later became the digital payments company PayPal. Um, so this is appropriate because we, we started talking about Apple and um, PayPal. This is a, Here we have another tech giant trying to get into to payments. I think the difference here is that Apple is a huge merchant. Amazon is a huge merchant. Alibaba is a huge merchant. WeChat is a huge merchant. Um, by contrast, there's not a huge amount of commerce on Twitter. So yes, I can see why Twitter wants to do this. Yes, I can see why Elon Musk doesn't want to have to keep selling Tesla shares to pay for Twitter um, and is looking for new revenue sources. I'm not quite sure what the opportunity is for merchants or people on Twitter unless we're looking to directly monetize people's tweets. Well, yeah, I suppose they're going to charge everyone for their blue ticks. So keep meaning to ask David if he's going to pay for his, but I guess that's something for us to cover another day. Um, 
And the last story in this section is from us, and that is that 11FS and Griffin have joined forces to bring the power of embedded finance to UK businesses. UK banking as a service firm Griffin and 11FS Foundry have announced a new partnership to help businesses access the benefits of embedded finance. The partnership will expand 11FS Foundry's current integrations, adding Griffin's banking as a service products. Over 90% of non-financial companies in Europe plan on introducing financial services products, such as digital wallets, mobile bank accounts or buy now pay later payment schemes in the next five years. 11FS and Griffin's partnership will simplify the building and launching of financial products by allowing businesses to innovate faster without compromising security. Um, so yeah, lots lots to come on on this one. So really, really fresh off the press from us, but an ex- a partnership that we're really, really excited about that just goes to show how embedded finances is growing from, from strength to strength. So expect to see and hear more from this in the near future, but check it out online. So um, let's bring everybody back for the final section of this week, looking at a more lighthearted story from last week. This comes from the BBC News, and that is that Glastonbury Festival ticket sale gets hit by technical issues. A technical problem has led to difficulties for some people trying to buy tickets for next year's Glastonbury Festival. Many users reported the site repeatedly crashing as C-Tickets, the company running ticket sales for the festival, asked people to bear with us while they were working on a technical problem. Tickets took more than an hour to sell out, and organiser Emily Evis apologised those who missed out. Fans on Twitter reported the website was not initially loading for a long period, while others were saying that they were booted off the booking site at different points, including the final payment point. I mean, full disclosure, I suspect this is partly in the news because I was having such a massive whinge to the team about about this because I was trying to buy tickets and and just about managed to scrape some in the end. But it was a huge disaster. I've never seen such a on mass failure of payment processing alex you mentioned before we started recording you'd had some some festival disasters were they payments related or what else yeah i mean they were they were sort of payments and uh ticket sales related i mean i i think it all is sort of coming to a head with this you know something is available online lots of people want to get it and it's going to be online at 1201 and 1201 rolls around and everyone logs in at the same time and tries to click and buy something and i don't know it feels like we're all being pitted against each other and whoever has the best uh, internet speed or the best payment credentials or way of paying like they're going to get through and they're going to get something and everyone else kind of gets screwed and obviously you're competing against bots you're competing against lots of different things so I feel like this is almost a a larger sort of existential problem with the state of payments and digital commerce right now like if something is time dependent your ability to outcompete everyone else on the globe with an internet connection for that thing is basically infinitesimally small. So it's it's a point of pain that I've run into before. I've, I feel, I'm glad that you've, you've shared this pain with me. Benjamin, were you, were you trying to get glass number tickets? I think I was about the only person in the team who wasn't. Um, there's got to be a better way, as Alex says. I mean, just doing something like a raffle, um, I mean, obviously a, a complicated raffle, but getting giving people time to apply for a raffle in advance, one per household or whatever, one entry per household or something like that. Or, oh, actually, that's not going to work with students. Um, but <laughs> there have got to be better ways than inviting everyone to try and crash your site. Also, there have got to be ways to anticipate, okay, we're going to have the half the internet, you know, or half the internet from the UK hitting our website. How are we going to deal with that? Um, so, yeah, there have got to be better ways of, of, of doing this. Um, this is poor in 2022. You know, it's entirely foreseeable. Um, sort it out. Find a better system. I think, yeah, we've, I mean, I was, I've never, I, mean, I was on a team WhatsApp group trying to kind of coordinate this mission of getting tickets. And um, I would not have profiled the majority of people in this group as 
you know, payments nerds. But by the end of this catastrophic hour and a half, you know, these people that would never normally give a give a damn about payments were just saying like this system is broken, like something needs to something needs to change. So it certainly kind of piqued interest in payments, but probably not for the right reason. Sophie, were you, were you trying for tickets or? So this is I was I was at Glastonbury last year, and I I've got a wedding this year on the Glastonbury weekend. So the group that I usually go to, we all go to this wedding, which is. It was actually very weird to sort of be like not being part of the process, but also wanting to be part of the process. But the WhatsApp group was wild, absolutely wild. And in a way I was like, oh, I'm really glad <laughs> that I have got an excuse not to not to be part of it. But um, I think there's something about it though that just makes, it's the whole thing. Glastonbury is nuts. And maybe the like scrappy, awful, painful way to get tickets is just part of another part of just like the crazy experience but i agree it's 2022 guys and you know what's coming sort the site out <laughs> just get it get it ready you're making a lot see tickets you're making a lot of money <laughs> so let's just let's just make it work i've got some good news for you sophie we're we're, we're organizing our own our own festival um, a fintech insider music festival apparently it's called bastonbury is what oh, i've been wow. told for by the team the pun was not of my not my right <laughs> anyway who were who, who are our headliners going to be sophie who, who's going to headline our festival so when i bought tickets for uh glastonbury in 2019 for the 2021 and then got um, delayed. Taylor Swift was headlining and I'm not a massive Taylor Swift fan but I think she would be really fun. I had no fintech pun at the top of my head, sorry I realise that's probably what you're after but I'm just going to Taylor Swift. <laughs> Taylor Swift no. pay. There you go. Okay, yeah, yeah I see what you did there, I see what you did there. <laughs> Alex who's, who, who are you throwing into the headline? Well, list? I would nominate Megan Trainer just because I've always wanted the mashup of All About That Bass and Banking as a Service. So I feel like if she's not like performing at a fintech festival, we've screwed up somehow. Absolutely. No, I love it. Benjamin, who's, who are you adding to the lineup? <laughs> I got invited to this show very late. I'm a last minute associate. I have had no time to think through a fintech pun. Um, it doesn't have to be a pun. We just want to know like, what, what music is closest to your heart. I love the way Adele engages an audience. I think Adele is fantastic on stage. There are some performers who come on and they just perform. I love someone like Adele who really just talks to the talks to the crowd and and you know gives everyone a great time as well as great music. I saw her at Glastonbury a couple of years ago and she I think she broke the record for the most swearing on stage ever. It was it was exceptionally <laughs> impressive. I mean she she was she was great as an artist, but uh, but yeah it was it was it was not child friendly, I would say. Um, I'm torn whenever like I suppose in terms of like who I'd put on the list I'm torn between picking somebody that I'd actually like and just picking someone that would wind wind my husband up so um, but no I saw I saw Stormzy at Glastonbury a couple of a couple of years ago and he was awesome so I think I'd like to see him again there's no fintech pun but just, just good to mix it up well brilliant well um, on, on that note that wraps up this week's new show thank you so much to today's guests where can people find out a bit more about you Alex uh, well assuming Elon Musk doesn't suspend me I am on Twitter at AlexH underscore Johnson and um, you can also Google Fintech Takes and subscribe to the newsletter you're not doing any parody accounts are you I, I that's, immediately that's stopped as soon as he took over so I'm, I think I'm safe <laughs> brilliant good news fingers crossed Sophie what about you uh, yeah, you can also find me on Twitter at Sophie Winwood. And if you're building something cool, uh, send me an email at sophieanthemus.com. Awesome. Benjamin, are you building anything cool? Uh, we're doing some interesting stuff with some of our clients, yep. Um, but uh, I can't talk about that on, on LinkedIn or anywhere else, or Twitter or anywhere else. Um, 
uh, but you can find out more about some of what we're doing at 11fs.com. Brilliant. As for me, you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at K8Moody. Thank you so much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.